So in Nahum, um, it was it was uh, about uh, it was about a hundred years earlier that the ancient empire Assyria had conquered half of the what we think of as the country of Israel. It was the northern ten tribes, right? And then Judah and little Benjamin were left behind. Um, that was in the year 722 BC because of Israel's great and ongoing idolatry and wickedness and being self-satisfied. So who knows something about Assyria? All right, we have one. Excellent. What? The capital was Nineveh. One of the capitals was Nineveh. Nineveh was its last capital, and it was its capital during the time of the book of Nahum. But it had four or five capitals. Um, so, when Jonah preached, it actually wasn't its capital yet, but it was, in God's words, a great city, which we'll see in part two of this message, which we hope to get to in 15 minutes if we can go fast enough. Today you're getting two for one. So, Nahum and then Jonah. So, um, the Assyrian, do, do you remember our, uh, raise your hand real quick if you remember the messages on uh, the book of Daniel. Who was here for that? Most of us, good. Um, so we talked about Babylon. Big empire, actually didn't last that long. It was a great empire. In Nebuchadnezzar's prophetic dream God gave him, it was the, the head, the golden head of the statue. And after that came the silver and the bronze and the iron. So iron is harder than all those materials. And we looked at that uh, we're pretty sure represents the kingdoms of Babylon. And then the, the Persians or the Medes and the Persians that swept Babylon uh, not many years later, still during Daniel's lifetime, and they were a greater empire, but not as glorious in many ways. <clears throat> After them came the Greeks, and the Greeks swept the Mediterranean world all the way to India, a much larger empire. That was the the bronze. And then after the Greeks, you know, when Greek culture and language and uh, had been exported to all these countries, and you kind of sort of had like one uh, shared culture, shared by many cultures. Then came the Romans and enter Christ, incarnated into the world when the time was right. When during the, the Roman peace, which was peace on threat of, you know, death by sword or torture by crucifixion. And the Romans were good at it. There was a reason why in Daniel's, uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the Romans were depicted as iron, because iron breaks and crushes everything, right? If, you got a, if I've got a bronze sword, and I swing it as hard as I can at you, and you're swinging your, your iron sword as hard as you can at me, the iron is both stronger and less brittle, and it's less expensive to make. <clears throat> so we think of Rome as like the, the Iron Kingdom, and you know, of course they took even more ground than the Greeks. Well, who came before Babylon then? Who came before that head of gold? It was Assyria. And Babylon we know because God called them to judge Judah and carried them away, including our young Daniel. But before them, the northern kingdom, or the northern half of the Hebrew people, the kingdom called Israel, the ten northern tribes, um, was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 uh, BC. So what do we know about the Assyrians? Sydney, you're on the spot. Predecessors to the Babylonians. Roughly the same people. Yeah, okay, so here's our map. You've got, you got to have maps and timelines in your head. So work hard at developing this, right? So here's the Middle East. You've got some countries there. You've got, you got little Israel, and then there's, let's do modern day, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, right? And there's some other ones, okay? Can you, can you, can, can you kind of see that? You gotta have maps in your head. You gotta study maps. So, right up here in kind of northern Iraq, am I getting the shit? You're backwards. In northern Iraq, up here, um, close to Turkey, there's the city of, I don't know how to pronounce that, Mosul? Mosul? Adam, did I say that right? Mosul. Thank you. Um, so, the modern city of Mosul actually encircles the ancient city of Nineveh. Unfortunately, the some of the gates, great and beautiful gates of Nineveh, still stood like not many years ago, 
And last night I was looking at pictures of how ISIS came in and they bulldozed and blew up the gates. Like, finally lost to history, and they'd, let, they'd stood all these years. Another thing that stands all these years is one of Assyria's siege ramps. So, uh, so Nineveh was the final capital of uh, the Assyrian Empire, and Babylon would have been like, kind of like lower Iraq originally. Babylon and Assyria coexisted as peoples uh, in, a, in a really small areas for a couple of thousand years. A thousand, fifteen hundred, several thousand. Like These are like ancient peoples. If you look back at Genesis chapter 10, you see Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, first guy to be called a mighty man on the earth. And he goes and he builds like multiple cities. Where is he building? He's building in that fertile crescent, like the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, kind of between Kuwait and like northern Iraq and Turkey. Um, and uh, the, what they call the cradle of civilization, right? And so, uh, so the Assyrians started there, so did the Babylonians, so did several other empires. Uh, you've heard of the Sumerians that came before them, the Akkadians, right? Those of you guys who like history. I hope you do. So, so the Assyrians were an ancient people dating back to, I guess, about the time of Nimrod, because it says he built a couple of their cities by name. So, so that's like thousands of years before Christ. But the Assyrians came on the scene as a world power um, way before... Uh, Israel was getting established as a monarchy. So Saul, David, Solomon, these guys are reigning in the ballpark of like 1050 BC, 1000, uh, like late 900s, that's Solomon, right? And so they're reigning in this little teeny tiny country, it's really small when Saul assumes the throne. He expands it a little, David really expands it, and Solomon expands it all the way up to the Euphrates River right, in all its glory. And then, you know, his son and the other guy, one of his generals or one of his administrators, uh, took each, each took a half of the kingdom and it was divided until the present day. So, the Assyrians came onto the scene as a world, as a, as a, as a country, long before Saul. But in Saul's day, think about, uh, think about what Saul had to work with when he went up against the Philistines. He's got like this coat of, uh, he's got armor, he's got a sword. Remember, Saul was a giant. You know, he's a head taller than everybody in Israel. So he's got a big sword, and he's got this stuff. And he's like, here, David, you know, the Spirit of the Lord is obviously on you, you know, but don't go out against Goliath without the weapons, you know, take these. And he's got um, uh, armor, and David's like, I can't, I haven't tested these, I can't, I can't wear this. And Goliath over there, he's got this giant beam of a spear with, uh, what is it, like a is, it, is this head of his spear like 10 pounds or 20 pounds? I can't remember. It's, it's really heavy. It's like heavier than like anything I'd want to lift. So I don't like to work out. Lift weights. So, and that's made of bronze. So they've got bronze technology over there around the time of Saul um, and so on. But who has iron? The Assyrians. The Assyrians have iron at this time. And around the time of Saul, um, roughly, this uh, brilliant guy comes to power in the reasonably small country of Assyria that's been expanding, and he revolutionizes military tactics and weaponry in the ancient world, and it lasts like until the castle age. He, he and his predecessors, who mostly were brilliant military uh, tacticians and, uh, and strategists, um, um, and had like technology that was head and shoulders above everybody around them, Assyria goes around like and just crunches and crushes everybody around them. They invented like the siege tower, right? You know, you wheel it up to the, to the walls of Jericho or Lachish or J Jerusalem or whatever, and then, uh, and then you have one or two battering rams hitting the walls while you've got archers on top shooting down at the walls. Nobody can stand against that kind of thing if it's done in a certain way. And the Assyrians did it, and they did it well. Uh, and they did it to city after city after city. They, they were the ones who built these giant siege ramps. They just put a bunch of dirt there, put stones on top, and climbed up. There's one still standing outside the city of Lachish in roughly, it's either in or right, just about in Israel. Does anybody know? The map was really small, and I was like straining to see the print. But it's like there. It's, it's like there. Okay. Um, the, their siege ramp was so well built, it's still there today. 
So the Assyrians were known for their skill on the battlefield. You know, they had like an early form of the phalanx with spearmen covered by archers, and they had uh, recurve bows, which, you know, are better than like regular, uh, simpler bows because they can shoot farther. And, uh, and then they had the like uh, battlefield engineers. This was like the thing the Assyrians brought to the table. And, uh, and administrative uh, techniques, like they could supply food and, and the things that the army needed better than anybody had ever done in the world before them. And so they had a bigger army. Plus they had iron, which shattered opponents' weapons, maybe, um, <clears throat> and was cheaper to make. And uh, they kind of had a chokehold on the iron supply, because there's none in Assyria, hardly, uh, as they expanded and took over everybody's everything. And they just took uh, fortified city after fortified city. And here was their reputation. It was a lot like that of Iron Rome. Iron Assyria was brutal. Not only did all this, like, highly organized fighting units that Rome had that allowed them, in part, to conquer the, this huge section of the ancient world, but Assyria kind of, like, invented that. <clears throat> um, they were disciplined in battle, they were well-organized, and they, like Rome after them, were brutal. So to not go into too much detail, um, I remember my first time going deer hunting, and I got a deer, and, you know, if you're a little sensitive like me, you're, it's, it's, you're happy you got the deer, because it means, you know, now we're going to have some venison, but you're also kind of sad, and it's also kind of gross. And I'm a nurse, and I've changed a lot of bandages, and I've seen a lot of really gross things and a lot of blood. But when it's you that kind of causes it, it's, it's kind of gross. So without going into too much detail, Everything that gets done to an animal uh, when you hunt an animal and kill it um, and prepare it for eating and save the hide and all that, uh, the Assyrians did that to some of the enemy nobles and princes. And then they wrote about it in stone, and, uh, and we have those records today because um, they're like pictures and writing describing what they did to some of the peoples they conquered. It's super sick. Um, and... Uh, so they ruled with technology and tactics. They ruled with terror. In fact, it kind of backfired on them because whenever any of the, the states within their domain had a chance, they rose up against them. And it was happening over and over and over. And finally, in 612 BC, the empire was crumbling and the, the current uh, uh, princes, actually the, the princes were fighting each other, a couple of brothers, and the empire, they wasted the empire's resources and it was the judgment of God coming upon Assyria. And Nahum wrote this prophecy. So at the time, Nineveh is the capital, right? An oracle, or a, a prophecy, or a word of vision. An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. And we're looking for something as we read this. We're looking for what is God like? Think of the context this is 612 BC. Israel has known about Assyria and had contact with them since you know, the time of the early uh, Hebrew kings. Do you think the Assyrians have attacked them or troubled them a little over the centuries? Do you think, do you think Nahum and his contemporaries hated the Assyrians? And was there cause for that hatred? How do you think they felt when the prophet Nahum opened up with this word of, Nahum, by the way, means comfort. Nahum's prophecy opens with this word, which is a word from the Lord of comfort for his people Israel. It says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. That's a word of comfort. As we know the Lord, as we come to know him, which is a process, we, we have to keep in balance the attributes of God and his holy nature, and it is perfect. And in this case, he had been exceedingly patient with Assyria. Did the Assyrians deserve to die? Yes. 
Did the Assyrians deserve to go to hell? Yes. Did, were the people of Israel waiting for their judgment to come? Yes. This was a message of comfort. Verse 3. We have to keep God's attributes in balance. Verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger. Praise God or I wouldn't be here. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind. Daniel, do you like tornadoes? So a whirlwind is like a little tornado, right? So when you see a whirlwind come, you think like, well, maybe it's not strong enough to pick me up and carry me away, but I should at least cover my eyes because the flying dust is probably going to blind me and you might crouch down, right? The Lord's way is in the whirlwind and the storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. In the ancient world, coming on clouds is an image of deity. Uh, it's also, we, we know the, from Daniel chapter 7, it refer, we see Jesus coming on the clouds and being presented before the Ancient of Days. When Jesus comes on a cloud, it's a sign. It's a sign of two things. A, he's God. B, he's judging now. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. You remember we talked about how land and sea are old Hebrew word pictures for uh, God's people who are located here. Historically they were, but that's about to change in part two of this message if we get to it. And the sea, everything around the land, all the Gentile nations, all y'all, well, actually all of us except my wife, She's Jewish. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Remember, this is Jesus. This is our Heavenly Father. This is the Holy Spirit. His wrath is poured out. Remember the bowls of wrath in Revelation? That's always happening on all the beasts, like Assyria was a beast even before Babylon was a beast. His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Let's keep this in balance. Verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. We'll come back to that when we get to Jonah. Because the Ninevites are going to take refuge in him. But we'll have to go back in time for that. First, we're in about the year 612. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? Remember Psalm 2? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. It's kind of ironic he's saying that to the Assyrians because the Assyrians had this shrewd little political tactic of if a country rebelled, if a state in their empire rebelled against them, no problem. We'll just go crucify you. Oh, and one might say they invented crucifixion. They would you know, put a, a stake and they would impale people on it. Um, and uh, they did things like that liberally. Um, they would take the people who were left, take them, and they would take them to the far reaches of their empire and resettle them. If, let's say, I don't like our, you know, let's say, let's say there's some kind of like tyrannical government and they're real bad and, and they capture me and I've been resisting them, okay? Um, now let's say they move me to, I don't know, Alaska, no better. How about they move me to like Japan? I don't know anybody in Japan. I don't know Japan's language. Um, you know, um, like I got no contacts. I got no history there. I don't have any money. Uh, they gave me some land. The Assyrians would give you some land and resettle you there. But I'm not going to be very likely to be capable or willing of uh, mounting a, a, another insurrection against Assyria if I don't even live anywhere close to home and I don't know anybody. Shrewd, Assyria, cruel, ruthless, brutal. 
Even their own people feared them. And thus it was in the days of Nahum. So we have a homework assignment, please. There are several verses in here, in chapter one, that we just read. I'd like to ask you to go home and get some note cards or a paper, and if you type it out fine and print it, um, there's always some advantage of handwriting it, but would you please pick several of these verses? Um, I suggest verse two and three, and verse seven. Um, to help us remember that sometimes the Lord's wrath is comfort for us. And sometimes his mercy, which we'll find out was very unwanted by Jonah, is comfort to somebody who deserved it even less than Jonah did. Part two. Let's rewind to about the year 750, 775 BC. We'll flip over two books to Jonah. So did you get Nahum chapter one, Recommended verses 2 and 3 and 7 as memory verses to write up and put on your wall, stick in your pocket. And we'll have one from Jonah, which we'll get to. Okay. Jonah chapter 1. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise. Do you know what does that mean? Do you know what does arise mean? Get up, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. I think three times in the book of Jonah, God calls it a great city. And some people who, um, who uh, dislike God and are overconfident in their intellectual prowess will uh, attack and try to deconstruct the scriptures, but the scriptures cannot be broken. So when God calls Jonah, uh, Nineveh a great city, and we'll see later that he says it's a three days journey to like, get through it. I don't know if he was talking about greater Nineveh, which was Nineveh and the several other cities, a couple of which were built by our buddy Nimrod. Um, that would have been a three day journey. It's only Nineveh's from the archeology span we have, which is good, is only like seven or eight miles in circumference. So I went out with Sam Garris Strand. Are you here, buddy? Nope. Well, my legs are here. Um, I had to ask him when we were walking back from our jog yesterday, am I waddling? Yes, he said, you're waddling. Um, we didn't go seven or eight miles, but uh, if that's the circumference, the radius is about what we went yesterday, and I hadn't jogged in a while. And it didn't take us three days. Um, so when it says three days to get through it, I'm not quite sure what he means. Um, come again. Maybe it's because he had to preach. There, and he had to stop at street corners and preach, so it took him three days to get through. So there are like maybe three, four, five uh, very logical possibilities of what he means. Um, but when he says great city, this is not an insignificant city in the eyes of the Lord. Because in the Lord's heart towards Nineveh, Nineveh, that bloody city. Let's read Nahum chapter 2. You don't have to flip there. Um, Nahum chapter two, verse, uh, verse 13. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. That's the Lord of the armies of heaven. And I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. Dot, dot, dot. Chapter three, verse one. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. And it goes on. Back to Jonah. So that's what Nineveh was known for. And their reputation was not without cause. Jonah, who lived before Nahum, Jonah's mentioned in 2 Kings. Uh, he preached a message, uh, he prophesied under, I think, Jeroboam II, that Israel, before the northern kingdom Israel, was destroyed in 722 BC, close to 100 years before uh, Nineveh fell and the Assyrian Empire as a whole fell. Um, um, Jonah preached even before that in around 750, maybe 775 BC. So do you have the timeline? Here's Christ. Oh, it's backwards. So we're in like the mid-700s, Jonah preaching, um, 722. So we're counting down to the year one, okay? Um, this is all before Christ. Then we have uh, 722, the cup of the sin of the northern kingdom of Israel is filled right up 
and it's spilling over. And God makes them drink, in the words of Revelation, the cup of his wrath. That's quoting uh, the prophets before him who say, drink the cup of my anger. And, and wine looks like blood. So drinking blood sounds like a bloody mess, right? And uh, Israel deserved it. 722 BC, God raised up the Assyrians. God sent them against Israel. God caused the Israelites, according to Assyrian political practice, to scatter them. And those Israelites have been scattered to this day, although some have returned to Israel and maybe one sitting in our pews. Don't roll your eyes. So, um, so then Nahum in 612, or at least his prophecy was fulfilled in 612. Okay, so you have the timeline. So God says to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. What's his message? Repent. Call out against it. God's going to judge you. This is a hell, fire, and brimstone message. It's nothing short of that. And it's the mercy of God. Like we saw these verses that almost seem to contradict in Nahum chapter 1. The mercy and the judgment and the wisdom of God, they're all wrapped up in one wonderful Father. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. I think of him as like an early John the Baptist. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Where's Tarshish? The opposite direction. I actually forgot to look it up. but You'll look it up on your map and you'll keep it in your mental map. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So here's this guy, and he's a prophet. That's kind of like a pastor. And God puts the, the Holy Spirit on him to, and gifts him with the ability to evangelize. And, and calls him like the apostles were called and sends him to go to this Gentile nation. And he's like, I know something about God. And he's thinking, and he's thinking. And he's thinking of Exodus 34. Can we flip to that on the slide? He's thinking of Exodus 34. You've got to spend lots of time in like Exodus 32, 33, 34. Um, they're some of the sweetest chapters of the whole Bible. And if you don't know them, it's, it's kind of like we don't know what's in God's heart. So Exodus 34, let's see, verse uh, 6. Or verse 5, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. Who's him? It's Moses. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. So God is like, telling Moses what his name is. And here's what he says his name is. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. That's what Nahum said. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Remember Nahum said he keeps wrath for his adversaries, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. As far as I understand, those are near synonyms, so I guess he really means it. But who will, like Nahum says, by no means clear the guilty? Sounds like a contradiction. It's not. This is the heart of our God. And he rightly divides when justice and when mercy are applied to his people. First, his own people, who, whom he loves, because he loves, he disciplines. And then to his adversaries, whom he judges. Oh, but wait, now he has mercy on them. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. 
and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And then Moses asked, says, well, we're a stiff-necked people. Please go in the midst of us and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. So another memory verse would be, which I didn't mention before, Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, or halfway through verse 6, and verse 7. Exodus 34, 6, and 7, and maybe 8, maybe 9. So Moses gets it. Moses gets the heart of God quite well. He gets, he gets the love, he gets the vengeance. And the, love, the, the, the iniquity is visited, you know, like a few generations down. And, and the love is visited thousands of generations down. Are we thousands of generations from Moses? We're getting there. Wow. So the love for Moses is being visited on us still. I mean, that's if you take it literally, but it's, it's, it's thousands and thousands and thousands. The point is it doesn't end. It's a, using the word thousands isn't a number, it's a word picture, right? It's a big number. It's a lot is what it means. Jonah, you preacher, you've preached that, haven't you? You've taught that in the synagogues. You've probably prophesied that to the king when he called you in and told him, told you, Jonah, you know, Jeremy the Bowen II or whatever, you know, come teach me some of that word of the Lord. You know. I don't know if you listen or not. Jeremy the II made some mistakes. So Jonah knows all this about the Lord, and he immediately goes and pulls out his wallet. And he pays the fare and he goes down into the belly of the ship to carry him into the sea, away from the presence of the Lord. Land, sea. Actually, it's backwards. The Mediterranean Sea would be over here. Israel, Mediterranean Sea. So, is the Lord going to have any of that? No, because the Lord's mercy for Moses and David is being visited on Jonah. Or is God going to judge him? Is God going to kill him? Is God going to discipline him with his rod of iron? The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. I want you to imagine being in a boat, and back then boats were tended to be smaller than they are now, even the big ships. So you're in a ship, it's made of wood, it's connected with, I don't know, like wooden trunnels, or, or maybe metal or iron, nails, um, and it's got sails, and the sails are made of like cloth or leather or something. And you've got waves. Like Daniel, are you still there? Daniel loves tsunamis. Uh, every week he asks me, Daddy, can we watch a tsunami video? And some weeks, you know, we watch a new tsunami video, although there are only so many cool ones on the internet. There's like a massive wall of water, and it, it smashes and it sweeps away everything, like concrete, like, like steel cars. It just things, just, things just lift up and start to float along as the surge travels inland. Waves can be a terrible thing. Imagine being in that boat, and imagine not being Jonah. Imagine being one of the guys, and you're from wherever, you're on your way to Tarshish, you're a sailor, and, and you're crying out to your idol, your, your, idol, your God, and you're, and you're like praying, like, I vow, I'll do this and this and this, and I'll sacrifice this and this and this, and I'll never do whatever, and I'll always do, and, and you're making vows as fast as you can, and mixed with curses under your breath, or not under your breath, over the roar of the waves, and these waves are smashing your ship. What did these guys do wrong? Nothing. They're like caught up in the, the discipline, or is it judgment, on Jonah? And where's Jonah? He's sleeping. He's down in the bottom of the ship, and he's not bailing water. He's not tightening the ropes. He's not getting all the heavy things he can find and chucking them overboard like all the rest of the sailors on the ship. Like, their job is to deliver this cargo. These guys are going to be in debt probably for years if they don't deliver, depending on what kind of company they work for. Like, and they're like, I'm this close to death. I know the sea. And this is the sea like I've never seen it before, and I'm about to die. Then the mariners were afraid. 
That's a little overly literal. And each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Sorry. <laughs> Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Well, they already knew a little bit about Jonah's story because he'd already told them he's fleeing from the presence of God, which we're about to see. And so they cast lots. So what's that, like dice or sticks, right? And uh, in the ancient world, you know, they, they did a little gambling, they did a little fortune telling, and here they are doing that. So they, they take their little lots and they cast them. And it's, it's, like, it's like all the sticks line up and point to Jonah. Is God here or is God not here? All, all the cards have Jonah's, Jonah did it written on them, right? So the Lord uses their little divination thing, and he over, overwhelms that, uh, just like Christians are always overwhelming and taken captive of pagan practices, although we don't cast lots. Although there was a time when they did in the Old Testament. Very interesting. So the Lord decides to speak. The Lord sends the storm. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. The Lord is everywhere in this story. The Lord is sovereign over the land and the sea. The Lord supernaturally gave Jonah a word of prophecy from God. And here's this guy, this Christian, this, this man of God. He's like a pastor. And he's like, hmm, nah. How? How much did he hate these Assyrians that he, a prophet, would say no to God that fast and go give his money and put it in the hands of that ship guy and get on that ship and sail off there? Let's see what he does next. He knows the Lord is a gracious and compassionate and forgiving God because he's preached and teached it. And now, here's what Jonah does. He gets down on his knees comes to the altar, and he gets saved all over again, like many of us have done so many times, right? And he turns his life over to God again. No! The lots fall on Jonah, and they're like, what have you done? And, but they know what he's done, because he's already told them that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And they're like, what shall we do to you so that the sea may quiet down for us? Because they know they're caught up in, the, in God's... Um, uh, storm against him. And they know it's his fault because God just told him and nobody missed that point. They knew that was a miracle when the lots fell to Jonah. It wasn't lost on them. They got it. They're like, how can, like, this isn't our God. So they're asking Jonah, like, like, he's your God. What do, what do we do to appease this God? What do we got to, what kind of like animal or people we got to sacrifice? And he's like, me. That sounds a lot like Christ, doesn't it? Jonah said, Throw me into the sea, and the sea will grow calm. So the sea, a picture of the Gentile nations. It sounds a lot like Jonah. So that's part of what Jesus means when, uh, when he's in button heads with the Pharisees or when the Pharisees are butting their little heads against him. And, and he's like, I'll show you the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah is that like Jonah was in the belly of the earth three days, so was Christ. And like Jonah came back to life out of nowhere, we're going to see like nobody in the history of the world ever got swallowed by no fish or whale and then came back three days later. I was trying to find like what species of whale this is because I always want to know like the biology and the botany and stuff with this stuff. So um, I read plenty of websites that said this never could have happened because there are no whales, like whales tend to eat like plankton and krill, they're like these little thingy, little shrimpy thingies, and they kind of filter them out, they don't like chomp them necessarily, although there are some whales, you know, you got like the sperm whale and all that, they eat the giant squid. So the site says, like, he couldn't have survived in a whale, because whales have throats that are like this big or something. Can't even, can't even fit his shoulders down the thing's gullet. Well, that's kind of silly, isn't it? Remember, we're talking about God. A, he could have opened its throat wider. B, he could have made a new kind of whale. It says fish, not whale. So uh, C, this is a miracle. Nobody stays alive in a fish for three days and nights. 
buried, I don't know how deep underwater. What's the pressure down there? You know, should it have ruptured his eardrums? Where's the oxygen? Where's the water? You can go three days without water, but you'll be within an inch of the end of your life, right? What about the stomach acids? Like, wouldn't his skin burn? This is a miracle. Like, this is no time to, to, to accuse the Lord of not being sovereign over some little fish, fish, a symbol of the Gentiles. He's very sovereign over the Gentiles and over our little Jew friend here, Jonah. Even the people of God who have rebelled against him, he's sovereign over them too. So the men can't escape the storm. They're rowing, they're rowing, but the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they prayed their first prayer they've ever prayed to a real God. They called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. They said, we're going to kill him. Don't hold us accountable for it. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Jonah was a prophet, and they took his instructions to throw him into the sea, foreshadowing Christ's sacrifice for all of us as a prophecy. And it was. And they did the right thing. They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Does that remind you of something the Lord did once or twice? Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice and made vows. So Jonah slips under the water, and if you've ever been out far from land, you know even if you're pretty tough, and even if you've got lots of swimming skill and all that, if you've ever been far from land, uh, especially if it's cold water, you know that once you go into the water, you don't come out again. Unless like a helicopter gets you, if you can stay afloat that long. Helicopters haven't been invented yet. We're at Assyrian technology, which is pretty high in the history of the world, but we're not like, you know, in the... In the 30s or 40s or whatever helicopters were invented. So, 1930s. So, um, so Jonah's dead. He's a dead man. And there, that day, they bury him. He's buried under the waves. Remember being buried with Christ in baptism? The imagery here is that he died. How many minutes do you have when you hold your breath? I'd probably have about three. Some people would have five. Um, you, know, you kind of freak out. I kind of do when I'm underwater too long. I can't hold my breath as long as I can when I'm above the water. But in a storm, when things are happening, like you're getting thrown overboard, you're not like slowing down your heart rate, taking a big hyperoxygenating, getting a big deep breath and holding it. Like he probably lost, got the wind knocked out of him as soon as he hit the water, right? But God had a greater plan and his mercy for Jonah was greater than Jonah deserved. Did Jonah at this point deserve to die? This was a great sin he had committed against the Lord at the expense of the lives of that great city. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Then the word of the, Lord, of, of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. So to walk from Israel to modern-day uh, uh, Iraq, Nineveh, that's a long walk. And he does it. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, takes off his robe, and covers himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And I was reading about like, like king's robes in ancient Assyria. They were richly ornamented. Some would have been so ornamented to the point that you couldn't fit any ornamentation on them more than they already had. This guy takes off his robes of, 
uh, of his high status, and he puts on sackcloth, which is when I was a kid, we used to catch a fish, and we couldn't go home till the end of the day because maybe there's another fish we'll catch. So we lay it in the back of the boat, and we take sackcloth, or a gunny sack, which is like the roughest, most uncomfortable kind of material I've ever heard of, and you'd dip it in some salt water, and you lay it over the fish, and that would keep it from getting too hot if the sun was shining. And up there, it didn't get too hot anyway, but it kept the meat from spoiling. Sackcloth, I'd never want to wear it. This king said, I'd rather humble myself. I'll do anything. I'll do anything. I'll do anything. He gets with his nobles, and they, in the ancient world, normally kings made decrees and not nobles with kings. They all come together and they all issue this decree, at least in Assyria. They all issue this decree, and they say, nobody eats, nobody drinks, everybody wears sackcloth, men, women, children, animals. Like, put the sackcloth on the animals. Like, everybody, humble yourself and fast and pray. No food, no water. That's, that's like a way tougher fast than I've ever done. Usually I make it till dinner time. You know, and I drink a lot of water and I drink coffee too. So. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, our last memory verse. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the Assyrians we're talking about. Is there then hope for me? There's so much hope for me. Some of us are going to do things that others of us, if we all know each other that many years later, will we'll think in our hearts against each other, wow, I wonder if they were ever saved. Maybe. That happens in congregations like ours. Maybe it'll be me. I sure hope not. I regularly pray I don't do anything really bad. There will be mercy for you there at the foot of the cross. The king of Nineveh, for as violent and disturbingly uh, merciless as he was, got it because the Holy Spirit fell on Nineveh and they cried out for mercy to God. And that's exactly what we need to be doing. And if we do, the main thing that will happen is we'll understand the heart of God better and the Holy Spirit will empower us to do the works he is calling us to do. And he's called all Christians to do great things. I think he's given GCF a special vision to do some great things and to help to come alongside churches and restore a deeper understanding of God's heart and a deeper understanding of the ways of God, a deeper appreciation for history and Christian history and many other things. And unless we fast and pray, I don't think that's going to happen. I think our only hope to become who God has called us to be is to begin or continue and press through a season of fasting with prayer. We need it bad. Do I think God's about to send, you know, the next beast to take out GCF? No. I think we're doing all right. I don't want to be part of anything that's doing all right. I want to do not what Jonah did and be like, well, I love that God is avenging and wrathful, but, uh, and I hope all his enemies die, because they're my enemies too. Do I not hate them with perfect hatred, God? He loved Psalm 139, but I think he only knew verses 17 through uh, 21 or 22. Like, do I not hate those who hate you, O God? But he didn't know how it starts out. Search me and know me. Or you have searched me and know me, and how Psalm 139 ends. Search me, O Lord, and know me, and see if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. He took part of the scriptures and he made that his doctrine or his preference. And we can't do that. And the only way to not do that is to deeply delve into the scriptures that, where God discloses his heart, like a father opening his heart to his child in, you know, like around the fireplace or something after dinner. You know, like this is intimate stuff. And God would speak the intimate wants, desires, concerns, thoughts of his heart, so that his thoughts aren't so high above us and his ways aren't so high above us, but his ways are ours, our ways. And that's the will of God. And that's what the Holy Spirit would like to do in us. And it's going to take fasting and prayer. Fast and pray and cry out to God to undo 
what you thought and undo what you wanted and put in your heart towards all people what he has. And especially the Lord has grace in store for us. His grace for us is this, that he would give you more of himself and that he would begin to give you breakthroughs in areas where, there's, where you've been unsanctified or unmatured for too long. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jonah. We thank you for Moses. We thank you for Nahum. We thank you for raising up the Assyrians and bringing them low. We thank you for converting the entire city of Nineveh. Even though the whole empire didn't uh, stick with you, we thank you for your compassion on that great little city and even its animals. Thank you, Lord. We bless you for what's in your heart. There's never been a God like you. We thank you for your judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and for saving Lot and his family out of it. We thank you for your judgment on the Egyptians and for saving a mixed people out of it to become one with the Hebrews. We thank you for your judgment on the Canaanites and for saving righteous Rahab and others like her and making them a part of God's people. We thank you for though the temporary discipline on Israel continues to this day and you have grafted in us Gentiles, we thank you that Israel will also have a conversion experience and that all the world will be discipled by this gospel. And we thank you that many will bow before you and will identify you not as, Lord, Lord, did we not do many things in your name? But as Father, because we know your heart. Oh, Lord Jesus, please show, especially us here in this congregation, those who are watching and those who are present, your heart. And please give us chutzpah to press through and fast and pray and make the changes that you are calling us to make, that we need to make, lest we lose the vision that is being passed to us. And you have to raise up some other prophet, somebody else to go do it. Amen.